the first day I was born You had your eyes set on me Keeping me safe in your love All of my days I will sing Joyfully That Lord You are good to me Always so good to me Lord You are good to me Always so good to me Through all Of my joy And my tears Though I alone you were near guiding me through darkest nights and removing the doubt and the fear oh Lord you are good to me so good to me, Lord, you are good to me, always so good to me, I'm yours, you are mine, you gave me a purpose I could not find. Of the darkness into the light, leading me on and giving me sight. Oh Lord, you are good to me, always so good to me. Lord, you are good to me. So good to me, you loved me before I loved you. You let me know by dying for me that I was well worth the price that you. Paid for me at Calvary. Oh Lord, you are good to me. Always so good to me. Lord, you are good to me. Always so good to me. Lord, you are good to me. So good to me, Lord, you are good to me.
All right. Uh, okay. Good evening. Can you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 15? Romans chapter 15, verse 22. Romans chapter 15, verse 22. All right. Uh, we're going to... Uh, we're going to continue with our study of the book of Romans. We're coming to the end of Romans chapter 15. And um, we're going to study verse 28 this evening, where Paul's going to tell his readers that he planned on traveling to Spain by way of Rome after going to Jerusalem. And of course, he's going to Jerusalem with that uh, gift, that contribution from the Gentile churches that he established in the Roman provinces of Macedonia and Achaia. And uh, this gift, as we've been trying, as I've been trying to point out to you, it's very important. It's an expression or a token of unity between the Gentile churches and the and the the, uh, the Jew the Jewish believers in Jerusalem because uh, the Jewish believers were still very suspicious of Gentile believers. We can't understand that because you know we're primarily Gentile as far as the church's composition racially. We're primarily Gentiles now, and so we're in the 21st century. But it was different in the first century, especially in the first 60 years, 70 years of the church's existence which began on the day of Pentecost in June of uh, 32 A.D. in the city of Jerusalem. And uh, the first believers were Jewish. So we see that Paul is going to take this gift himself. He, he mentioned it, uh, Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he mentions this uh, particular contribution that Paul delivered. He delivered it, uh, it's recorded in Acts 19, 20, 21, and 22, that whole story of Paul delivering this gift. He mentions this gift in 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9. We've been bringing that up the last couple of weeks as well, that passage. And so this was a, this was a very big deal back there in the first century. And it actually is going to close, as I've also been pointing out in this study of Romans 15, it actually is going to bring to a close a particular chapter in the Apostle Paul's ministry. And uh, it's closing a chapter. He had pre- preached the gospel successfully from Jerusalem to Illyricum and uh, the northernmost extremities of the Roman Empire in the first century. So uh, Paul was now going to go uh, to deliver this gift, and it was going to be, this gift is also, as we've been pointing out, an expression of the love of God in the lives of the Gentile believers in uh, Macedonia and Achaia. An expression of love for the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And as we've been trying to bring out, we'll do again this evening, when we give, the, uh, what we're deriving from this study is that when we give, it's an expression of the love of God for our fellow believers. When we give to our fellow believers, when we give to the ministry, not only are we giving to the Lord, but we're also giving to our brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, as you've done it unto the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me, Jesus taught. When you give a cup of water to a, a, somebody who is in need or you clothe someone who is naked that's a believer, you've done it to Jesus. Jesus taught that in that, uh, in that great passage in Matthew 25 with the sheeps and the goat passage. But uh, we're going to continue to develop this particular uh, thought that Paul has here and how important this gift was uh, that he delivered it. He's actually, we're going to see personally, going to take care of this gift. He's going to see to it that everything is in the up and up. He doesn't want to have, he wants to make sure the, the integrity of the offering is there. And he's also, we're going to see in Romans fifteen twenty eight the conscientiousness of the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul had a great desire, as we've seen, to go see the Roman believers How, and also to go to Spain. But he had priorities and he was very conscientious about fulfilling those priorities and uh, maintaining those priorities. It was more important that he delivered this gift to the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem than head to, to Rome for his own refreshment and his own relaxation. And also more important that he goes and delivers this gift 
before he goes to Spain and evangelizes new territory. So this is telling us how important this gift was because it was an expression of the love of God for, from the uh, on the side of the Gentile believers toward the Jewish believers, and it was also a token of unity. It was symbolic that they were united. It was telling it was the Gentile believers saying to the Jewish believers, "We are separated by th- hundreds of miles from you, but we're with you. We're behind you." And they did it in a tangible way. They didn't just say, "I love you, brother and sister in Christ." And then just let you starve. What they did is they did something about it. They said, okay, we're showing you that we love you. Which is fulfilling a principle that John taught in 1 John 3, 16 through 18. Which we might touch on this evening if we get the time. Alright, should we have Romans 15, 22. So without further ado, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us, another day to gather together with other members of the body of Christ that are serious students of the Word of God, that seek to be your disciples of your Son, Jesus Christ. We just thank you, Father, for gracing us out, giving us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, because we're in union with your Son, Jesus Christ, married to Him. And we know, we thank you, Father, for the gift of the Holy Spirit and appropriating everything that your Son accomplished for us through His death and resurrection. We thank you for the fact that he did this the minute we were declared justified through faith alone and Christ alone. We thank you for the fact, Father, that you have revealed to us in your word through the Spirit that you indwell our souls permanently as well as the Spirit and the Son and that we know that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world and that we're seated at your right hand in a, power, a position of power and victory and union with your Son, Jesus Christ. And we know that your Son has accomplished the victory over sin, Satan, and his cosmic system, our three great enemies. And we know that the Spirit has appropriated that victory for us the minute we trusted in your Son as Savior. And we know that we can experience that victory now in time by obeying your word and the voice of the Spirit which is heard through the teaching of your word. And Father, we lift up our congregation. We pray, Father, that you, all of us would continue to grow in love toward you and each other, that the Spirit would convict us to operate in a manner in which you've operated toward us. When we were your enemies, you forgave us. You sent your son to the cross while we were yet sinners and that you raised us up and seated us with your son when we were dead in our sins and transgressions, when we were obnoxious to you. So help us, Father, convict us that we must and we're obligated to forgive each other no matter what we have one, of, one another has done to each other no, and convict the, the people in this church and other believers throughout the world that are uh, involved in bitterness and uh, our hypocrisy, and help them to see that they're not glorifying you by not forgiving their brother and sister in Christ. And so we pray, Father, for that, so that the church of Jesus Christ, both here in this church, in this area, and also in this country and around the world, would bring glory to you and demonstrate that we're disciples of your Son, Jesus Christ, 
so that we could be a, a witness to the unsaved. And we know that when there's division and there's a lack of love and uh, un, uh, bitterness and an unforgiving hearts and your people, that we're, we're not demonstrating that we're your disciples and that, in fact, we're involved in hypocrisy. And we just pray, Father, that you would help us not to get involved in these things. We also pray, Father, that everything this evening would go sound technically in the building. We pray those in the audience would receive their necessary spiritual nourishment, that they would be objective, and that they would be encouraged, instructed in righteousness, rebuked if necessary, in love. And we also pray that you would give grace to the communicator so that he could deliver your full counsel in a fashion that would be pleasing and honoring to you and minister to your people. So, Father, we pray for these things and people in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As I noted before, we're going to begin. A, uh, we're going to study Romans fifteen twenty-eight this evening, and Paul's going to re- reveal to the Roman believers in this passage that he planned to go to Spain by way of Rome after delivering to the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem the contribution from the Gentile churches and Macedonia and Achaia. As I noted earlier, this gift was mentioned in 2 Corinthians 8 and also 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And by mentioning, as we've seen, Paul brought out some principles about Christian giving. There's no, Paul never talked about tithing. That was Old Testament taxation in Israel. It's not mentioned by Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 16, and 2 Corinthians 9, all passages which talk about giving. So why do people tithe today? Because they don't know their Bible. Poor interpretation. And also, many pastors do that so they know what to expect from the offering because they're not operating in faith because if they did, they would never have people tithing and they would would be able to trust in God that if they're doing the job, they'll be provided for. And so there are a lot of churches that don't do that and they, they, they pressure people into giving. Giving is between you and the Holy Spirit. Of course, many believers love that freedom. However, many believers don't respond to this spirit and they, they neglect their responsibilities to their ministry or their brothers and sisters in Christ that are in need and therefore we have problems. So we see that we, when we hear that we love the fact that we have grace, but grace is not a license to do our own thing. Grace is a license to love and serve God. And so God has given us, wants us to give under the principle of grace. And that, that re- requires that we fulfill our responsibilities, Christian responsibilities, to love one another. And we do that. One of the manifestations that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ is that we give. And this is something that the, Rome, uh, the Macedonian believers and the Achaean believers understood. It was taught in the churches. And, uh, and uh, we see that these individuals were very eager. They were very eager, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 8, to give, provide for this contribution for the poor, destitute Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Now look at Romans 15, 22. Paul says, for this reason, in context, he's saying, because I was busy proclaiming the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum, church planting, he says, I've often been prevented from coming to you, the Roman believers. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, meaning there's no more places to church plant, and since I have had for many years... I'm longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I, I'm certain and I confidently expect to see you in passing. Note the translation. And to be helped on my way there by you. That means they would provide for him financially and a means of travel and traveling companions, whatever he needs, 
to get to Spain and evangelize that area. So that was called Christian hospitality. He didn't, you know, I've heard, I've, I've had people come to our church that have sat here and, t- and taught. And he, he, this person said to me, you're the only church that reads from second, uh, third John about giving to itinerant uh, evangelists and, uh, and, and preachers. And uh, we're the only church that does that. And a lot of churches won't uh, provide for these men. And that's a disgrace because we should, they shouldn't have to ask for it. It should be expected that we give to them and help them. That's Christian hospitality. We don't, we're not hospitable and we're not demonstrating that we're disciples of Jesus when we don't help our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those who are communicating the gospel. Guys like Gary Horton or Scott Grande or Billy Graham, those guys teach the uh, evangelists. So he says, whenever I go to Spain, for I am certain and I confidently expect to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there to Spain by you when I first enjoyed your company for a while. But now, I'm going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. And this, delivering this gift would be a service to the poor Jerusalem saints. For Macedonia, verse 26, and Achaia, the Gentile believers in those areas, have been pleased. They did it with joy, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 9 and 2 Corinthians 8. The Macedonian believers, and God expects us all to give with joy. If you don't do that... And grudgingly, God's not going to t- give you credit for it. That's not giving according to the Spirit. You're giving according to your flesh. You might as well keep it in your pocket and spend it on whatever you want to sp- spend it on. But you're certainly not going to get credit for it for, by God if you are giving grudgingly or you're giving under compulsion. You should give because you want to and you understand when you give to an, a ministry or you're giving to the, another believer a private individual or a church, you're doing it to Jesus. You're doing it to Jesus. You've done it at least to my brethren. You've done it unto me. So this is very important. They understood that. They love to give. A lot of Christians, unfortunately, don't like to give today. Look, so it says in verse 26, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Then, note the translation, they were pleased to do so, do so indeed because they're indebted to them. So there's the principle of spiritual indebtedness that we studied last evening. The Jewish believers had, were the reason why the Gentile believers had salvation because salvation is of the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. The apostles proclaimed the gospel were Jewish. The promises to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the promise of the spirit that was promised in the covenants to Israel, those were Jewish promises. They were given to the Jews and we become partakers of those promises. We are the, we're the wild olive tree, as we saw in Romans 11, engrafted into the, the olive tree, Israel. We're partaking from the, the rich root, Abraham, and the blessings that flow from, that flow to Abraham because of the promises God made to him. So we saw that in Galatians last evening, Galatians chapter 3. So we're obligated to give, he's saying, the Gentile believers are obligated to give to the Jewish believers. Why? Because the Jewish believers, the spiritual things of the Jewish believers, the Gentile believers had a share in. And it's the same principle Paul uses with the pastor, teacher, and the congregation. The pastor, Paul says, has every right to expect his living take, uh, to be taken from the people that he feeds the word of God. Because Paul says, if we sowed spiritual things among you, don't we have the right to reap material things from you? Read 1 Corinthians 9, Galatians chapter 6. All these passages, 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, it's called spiritual indebtedness. 
And Paul's teaching that here, not in relation to pastors, but actually in relation to Gentile believers and Jewish believers. So therefore, we can say that anti-Jewish sentiment, being anti-Israeli, is unbiblical. Because we owe everything to the Jews. Jesus is a Jew. The apostles are all Jewish. This book, the Bible, is Jewish. Any idiot out there who's persecuting Israel or is anti-Jewish and hates the Jews and he calls himself as a Christian obviously doesn't know his Bible. And another thing, the people involved in replacement theology, I've been bringing up, a lot of people think that, and a lot of, and we bring this up in last Sunday's class too, is there a lot of churches think that the church is the new Israel. No wonder they, they're anti-Jewish. No, no wonder through the centuries, Christians have been, like Luther, have been involved in being anti-Israeli. Because they think that the church has taken over, has replaced Israel. That's not what the Bible teaches. If that's the case, then God would be unfaithful to his covenant promises to the nation of Israel. And of course, those covenant promises were unconditional. The Abrahamic, Palestinian, New, and Davidic covenant are all unconditional promises, meaning that even though Israel's been unfaithful, God will be remain, will remain faithful. Thus, as we saw in Romans 11, that God has a future for the nation of Israel because he's faithful to the promises of Israel, even though Israel, the majority in Israel throughout the, throughout the centuries, have been unfaithful to him. So then he goes, so he says in verse, uh, in, in verse 27, they were pleased to do so because, the, indeed, because they're indebted to them. The Gentile believers are indebted to the Jewish believers. Why? For if, and we got a first class condition there, the idea is this, for it's a debater's technique, tool of persuasion. For if, and let us assume that it's true for the sake of argument, the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them, the Jewish believers, also in material things. And then our verse for this evening. Therefore, when I have finished this, and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, as we'll see this fruit to given to them. It's not of theirs, it's to them. I will go on by way of you to Spain, he says. So that statement there in verse 28 is the result of an inference from Paul's statements in verses 22 through 27, which we just read. And verse 28 is summarizing what Paul said in verses 22 through 27. Now, when he says, when I have finished, that's the word epiteleo, which means to complete, and it's used with Paul as its subject, and the task of delivering the collection from the Gentile churches and Macedonia and Achaia for the destitute Jewish believers in Jerusalem as its object. Thus, the word indicates here, when it says, when I have finished, that word in the original indicates that Paul will visit Spain via Rome after completing the task of delivering the collection from the Gentile churches and Macedonia and Achaia for the destitute Jewish believers in Jerusalem. The word functions here is what we call in Greek grammar a temporal antecedent participle. Big words, but what does that mean? It means something. It's important. It indicates that Paul will go to Spain via Rome after he completes the task of delivering the collection from the Gentile churches and Macedonia and Achaia for the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. When he says the word this, therefore when I have finished this, the word this there, is this there, is referring to Paul delivering the collection from the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia to the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. So hold your place, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8.
Now look at 2 Corinthians 8, 1, because in here, Paul's talking to the Corinthians about this exact same gift that he mentions in Romans 15, 22 through 29. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. The same church as Paul's mentioning in Romans 15. That in a great... Now, look what they did, how they gave. That in a great deal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Now, notice that. They gave out of their poverty. You know what that means? Remember the widow's might? Jesus taught, let's take, let's take, you got a guy who's got a million dollars or a woman who's very wealthy, a couple, and they, they got a million dollars and they give a hundred dollars. Then you look at somebody who has a hundred dollars in their bank account and they give 90 of it. Who gave more? Obviously, the one who had a hundred bucks in their bank account and gave 90% of it. That's the person who gave more. This is the, this is what we see. Not only did they do that, but they gave like the widows, the widow might, uh, where Jesus said that the widow gave her whole living in the temple treasury. While all the rich people were getting, thinking they were doing such a great job, and they were giving out of their prosperity. These people gave out of their poverty. Poverty. That's incredible. And they didn't care. They, they thought it was a great thing. You know why? Because they understood the principle of stewardship. All of your body, your soul, and my soul, everything we have on our back, everything our homes, our money, our bank account, everything given to us, every talent that we have, our spiritual gift, everything that we own, our mental capacity, has been given to us by God. What do we have that we don't have that hasn't been given to us? Including our money and our homes and everything else we have. And we cannot, we need to understand that these things must be used for the glory of God, not for selfish reasons. And these current Macedonian believers understood that. Look at verse 3. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability to give, they gave of their own accord. Notice, they gave of their own accord. They gave because they wanted to. And they begged us, it says with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus, that is, he had previously made a beginning, so that he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. He's telling them, that this is something that's important, it's a gracious work. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. He's saying this is your expression of love to your poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. For you know, look at this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, meaning he's God, yet for your sake, he became poor, a human being. Why? So that through his poverty, his humanity, you and I might become rich. We're now partakers of the divine nature. Second Corinthians, Second Peter 1.4. That's what he's talking about. So if God, he's saying, if God has done this for us, we're obligated to help the, the, these particular believers, the Macedonian, uh, the Corinthian believers, are obligated to provide for their poor Jewish bro- brothers in Jerusalem. That's what he's saying. 
So he says in verse 10, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to, de- also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. So he's saying, they were, they were, he's writing this because they were hesitating. They were being... They were holding back here. And he said, well, you promised that you would do this. This is something that you want, you should do and want to do. And it's an expression of the love of God. You're obligated. God did sent his son to the cross for you. You, through Christ's poverty, you became rich. So you're obligated to do this for them. Verse 12. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have much, have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. Look at Second Corinthians 9, for verse 1. For it is surplus of me. To write to you about this ministry to the saints. What ministry? The same thing he's talking about in Romans 15. Given to the poor Jewish believers. For I know your readiness, of which I boast you to the Macedonians. Namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year. And Corinthians lived in the Roman province of Achaia. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be empty in this case, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. Paul's saying, I boast about you to the Macedonians, and now if you're going to hedge on this whole thing and you're not going to give, you're going to embarrass me in yourselves before these other people. That's what he's talking about. Look at verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. They promised this to Paul. So that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now look what he says in verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly also will reap sparingly. Meaning if you give sparingly, you're cheap, you're not going to get much back from God. You're going to reap sparingly. You're going to reap rewards. Your rewards won't be as great. And he who sows bountifully, meaning gives bountifully, graciously, and generously, will also reap generously. Because when you give in obedience to the Spirit and the Word of God, it's divine good and you get rewards for it. Look at verse 7. Each one must do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Notice this. Remember what Paul said in verse 26 of Romans 15? He says they gave, they did it with joy. They, they wanted to do this with joy. They, they gave because they wanted to. They, it was happiness in doing this. It was a joy doing this. That's what he's talking about here. The, the, the Macedonian, the Cain believers had done this joyfully. They did it cheerfully. Look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So he's saying, you give, don't worry about you not being able to meet your own st- stuff and your own needs. God's going to provide for you. If you're providing for his kingdom, he's certainly going to provide for you. If you're providing for his people, you're sharing your prosperity with your, with your people, the body of Christ, he's certainly going to give it back to you so you can do it again. So look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. He teaches that to the Philippians too. So that always having all sufficiency in everything, 
you may have an abundance for every good deed. God will see to it that you have enough finances and material, whatever temporal things, so that you can bring, bring glory to him by giving, sharing these things with other believers. See, the word fellowship talks about sharing. Kinonia. It talks about sharing. We study that word quite a bit. Fellowship is about sharing. Sharing the things of Christ. Sharing our, our, our materials. Sharing our finances. That's, that's fellowship. Not just sitting in a fellowship hall. <laughs> Look at it. It says in verse 9. As it is written, He scattered abroad. He gave to the poor. God did. For his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. Give you the finances, the material you need to give for sowing and increase the harvestness of your righteousness. And you, when you do this, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So when the Jewish believers in Jerusalem got this gift, they rejoiced. They gave thanks to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgiving to God. Because of the proof given in this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality, the generosity of your contribution to them and to all. Notice that giving and obedience to the Spirit and the Word of God, it is it is a divine good and it glorifies God. Look at verse 13, uh, 14. While they also, the, Je- the Jewish believers in Jerusalem who are poor, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, Jesus Christ. Now look at Galatians. You're in 2 Corinthians? Go to the next book. Go to Galatians chapter 6. Look at verse 1. Galatians 6, 1. Oops, Galatians 6, 1. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass... You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now look what he says. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. That's for you out there who are doing what God wants you to do. He's saying, don't get weary. Don't lose, get, uh, go weary doing good because that's what the devil would like to do to discourage you. Then look what he says. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And that's what the Macedonian and Achaean believers are, uh, are doing for the destitute Jewish believers in Jerusalem. They're doing good to them. 
They were sought out an opportunity to help them and they're doing good, divine good. Good that's done in obedience to the Spirit. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Look at Acts, back it up. Go to Acts chapter 2. I'm taking you all these passages because I want to show you about how important it was to the early first century church to provide for the needs of their poor Jewish brothers or anybody who was destitute in the church through persecution. Now look at Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They, the, the, the apostolic first century church, they were continually devoting themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. Notice continually, not once a month. And a fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and a prayer, corporate prayer. Every, they were continually doing that. That's the four daily disciplines of the church the first century church. That's how dedicated they were. They put the church of the 21st century to shame. Look at verse verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Look at it, they did. This is not communism. Then they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. So what they were doing, like Barnabas did, it says in Acts chapter 5, somebody, that somebody needed something, so Barnabas had some property, he sold it, and he took the, the proceeds from the, sell, the sale, and he provided for somebody who was poor. Imagine that. That's what, these, that's what they did. And actually, it says in Acts chapter 5, Barnabas did that. And then Ananias and Sapphira, who were uh, coveted the applause of people, uh, they, they got in trouble because they held back some, they sold some property and they held back some of the money for themselves because they were covetous. They were involved in covetousness and they said, they were said to have lied to the Holy Spirit and they dropped dead right there. Peter had them, the Lord took them out. Look at it, it says in verse 40, uh, uh, 40, uh, 42, 44. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 45, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They liked to hang out with each other. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Go to 1 John. Go to 1 John chapter 3. Near the, near the end of the Bible. 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 16. John talks about how love, uh, giving is an act of love. First John 3.16. First John 3.16. We know love by this, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us. And we are obligated to lay down our lives for the brethren, our fellow believer. Look what he says. He, he brings it in a tangible way that we can do this. Verse 17. But whoever has the world's goods 
and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in that believer? It doesn't. He's not operating in love. It's like, it's like uh, you see somebody like the Samaritan. Remember the story of the good Samaritan? Somebody's broken, all, uh, hurt by the side of the road and everybody walks by. I don't want to get involved. <laughs> it's like seeing somebody in the church who's, de- who's destitute or, or is hurting financially or ne- is in need and saying, all right, I know that, but I'm going to walk away from it. I'm not going to do anything about it. Even though I have the means to do that and I say, no, I'm not going to do that. That's what, Paul, that's what John's talking about. That's not love. Look at verse, 11, uh, verse 18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed in truth. So just don't talk about that you love your fellow believer. And if he's in need, help him. Do something for him. You've got the means to do it? You do it, he says. And, I'm not, and that's not, listen to me, that's not just talking about your church. It could be any Christian in your periphery. It could be in, they go to another church. And you know that they're, they're hurting or they're in need and you have the means to help them, help them. They don't have to go to your church. Now go back to Romans 15, 28. Romans 15, 28, Paul says, Therefore, when I have finished this, and again, this is referring to Paul delivering the collection from the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia to the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Then he says, and therefore, when I have finished this, and then he says, and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs. The word and is uh, the, the conjunction ka, which is explanatory, or it's exegetical. That means it's introducing a statement that explains the preceding statement that Paul will go to Spain via Rome after completing the delivery of the gift to the poor in Jerusalem. So you could translate it in other words. Or you could do it like this. Therefore, when I have finished this, in other words, have put my seal on this fruit of theirs. So those two statements there are both speak of the apostle delivering that contribution from the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia to the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem, indicating that Paul is writing rhetorically. What I mean is this, is that the first statement, when I have finished this, is clarified by the reader, for the reader, by the statement, I have put my seal on this fruit of theirs. So the second statement here, have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, is explaining in greater detail his statement when I have finished this, the delivery of that contribution from the Gentile churches to the, uh, the, the Ju- church in Judea, the Jewish church. Now when he says, have put my seal on, that's the word srahizo, which is used in a mer- metaphorical sense as a commercial technical term. What he, what that means is, Paul's using a term that was used in business. It was used in accounting. It was used in the business of the day. In fact, we see the, the, the Egyptian papyri has all these different scraps of, you know, you learn a lot about a, 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 a people, a society and history. You go to their trash heap. And then we, we seem like in, in Egypt, we go to their trash heap and we can see bills of sale and stuff like that. And we see this word sprahizo used. So Paul's taken a word that was used in the first century. In, it was a commercial term. It was used in, by businessmen, businesswomen. So this word translated have put my seal on, sprahizo, is used in a metaphorical sense as a commercial technical term indicating a safely accomplished transaction. And thus it means to safely deliver. So Paul saying to us with this word that after completing the task of safely delivering to the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem the contribution from the Gentile churches and Macedonia and Achaia, he would go to Spain via Rome. Then, so we see that 
like epitaleo, which we saw earlier, this verb, srahizo, functions as a temporal participle and is antecedent in time, of, in time to the action of the main verb, which is translated, I will go on, indicating that Paul will depart for Spain via Rome after safely delivering this offering to the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Now, the words, when it says, have put my seal on, it's in the middle voice, the verb. And it's intensive middle. What does that mean to us? It's the Greek, the person who heard this in Greek. Remember, I'm trying to tell you what the Holy Spirit said in the original. That's my job. Well, this is what it would say to the, to the reader. It emphasizes Paul taking personal responsibility for the safe delivery of this contribution from the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia to the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And we know from Acts 19, 20, 21, and 22 that it was very dangerous of him to do this. His life was in danger by doing this. Did he care? No. He didn't care what it cost him, even if it cost him his life. He would gladly give his life for the, the, the love of the brethren and for the Lord Jesus Christ. So the intensive middle here emphasizes here Paul's taken personal responsibility for this gift. So you could actually translate it, uh, uh, therefore, when I have finished this, in other words, uh, when I, I myself have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, or this fruit to them, as we'll see. That's the idea. I myself. He's, he's talking about something. He's emphasizing his personal responsibility in the matter. This fruit refers to the proceeds uh, from the collection that Paul received from the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia to be delivered to the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. So he's talking about this money that they gave, materials, clothing maybe. Uh, maybe, I, don't know, I doubt it would be food because it wouldn't... Uh, take, uh, wouldn't last the journey. They didn't have refrigeration back then. So it's probably clothing. It's probably money so that they could buy food. And so this was called fruit. That's called, that when he, when he means, it's, it's metaphorical. The word's karpos. It talks about divine good. It's talking about Christ-like character. It's talking about this is something that's valued by God. See, God wants us to produce fruit. It's something that Jesus taught, the vine and the branches metaphor. We can't bear fruit to God if we're not in fellowship with the Lord. The Spirit is the one who produces this fruit in us. And this is what this giving was. How many believers really ever looked at their giving as good, divine good? Good that's going to be rewarded by God. Good that brings glory to God. Good that produces thanksgiving to God. That's what we need to take a different attitude about giving if we don't have the right attitude now. And if we do have the right attitude, well, this is just going to encourage you further. Now... The word here, when it says uh, fruit, the word fruit there is karpos, as I said before. It indicates that Paul considered this offering on behalf of the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem as divine good. Since he uses this word to describe that which is produced in the obedient believer by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to hold your place. Go to John's Gospel, chapter 15, because Jesus talked about bearing fruit to God. And the way would to do it, fellowship with him, obedience to him. Look at John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 1. John 15, 1. <clears throat> John 15, 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Speaking, of course, figuratively. And my father is the vine dresser, the one who takes care of the vineyard. Every branch in me, that's us, the Christian, 
talks about our union and identification with Christ, our marriage to him. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. That talks about undeserved suffering. You're already clean, saved, because of the word which I have spoken to you, the gospel. Abide in me. That means that's John's terminology, the Lord's terminology of having Christian fellowship. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you, Christian, unless you abide in me. You've got to stay in fellowship. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, doesn't have fellowship with me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them in, into the fire and they're burned. It's not talking about eternal condemnation. It doesn't mean you lose your salvation at all. If you, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. So the Macedonian, the Cain believers, by giving, presenting this offering to the Jewish believers through Paul, was demonstrating, glorifying God. They were bearing fruit to God. It glorified God. And then he says, in verse 8, it proved that they were his, God, uh, Jesus' disciples because they were operating in the love of God. Look at verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove, demonstrate to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now, who's producing this fruit? Go to Galatians chapter 5. When we obey Jesus' teaching, we're obeying the Spirit. The Spirit's going to produce this divine good in us. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Actually, look at, uh, uh, look at verse, um, verse 13. Galatians five thirteen. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Galatians 5, 13. Paul's speaking to a troubled church that was involved in legalism. The Judaizers got a hold of them and they're trying to get them circumcised. And Paul was upset with them because he loved them. Look at Galatians 5, 13. For you, Galatian believers, were called to freedom. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The Macedonian believers and the Achaean believers that Paul talks about in Romans 15, that gift was serving the poor Jewish believers. They were operating in love. They were serving those believers that were poor in Jerusalem. See, love is not something we talk about, as John said. It's something that we do. It's an, you manifest, it's a, it can manifest, it should manifest itself in a tangible fashion. Look at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. The, word, the language there is uh, talking of, uh, of wild animals. Look at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you won't carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. 
Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. I always like people say, "How do you, you can't tell if I'm out of fellowship. Oh, yes, I can tell you're out of fellowship. He has, Paul, Paul wants us to know that. Look what he says. It, it's right, it tells you right away if you know somebody's in fellowship with God or not. And they can say all they want. Say, I'm not, how you can't tell. Oh, yes, I can. I get discernment. I get the spirit. And look at it says right there in that, verse 19. The deeds of the flesh are evident. Which are what? Immorality, impurity, sensuality. Idolatry, putting things ahead of your relationship with God. Even legitimate things. Sorcery, that talks about drug abuse, by the way. Enmities, strife. Strife means you're fighting and bickering. Jealousy, outbursts of anger. You can tell somebody's out of fellowship when there's an outburst of anger. Disputes, pettiness, of course. Dissensions and factions. That's when you know the people are not walking by the Spirit. Envying and drunkenness, carousing and things like these of which I forewarn you. He told him, to, he warned him about this stuff. That those who practice such things as a lifestyle will not inherit the kingdom of God. Meaning they won't get rewards. It has nothing to do with your salvation. Now look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, the production of the Spirit, is love. That's what the Macedonian and the Cain believers are doing. The Spirit was producing in the love of God in their lives. How does he do that? When we obey what he says in the word of God. He inspires the scriptures, right? He, the words I speak are spirit and a life, Jesus said. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now go back to Romans 15, 28. And we'll wrap up this verse. Back to Romans 15, 28. So Paul says in Romans 15, 28, Therefore, based upon what I said in verses 22 through 27, when I have finished this, I've delivered this contribution to the poor Jewish believers, in other words, have put my seal on this fruit, and then it says of theirs. This is good re- another good reason why we go back to the original. It's a mistake. Theirs is the, the intensive personal pronoun, Alftos, which does not refer to the Gentile believers in Macedonia and Achaia, but rather refers to the destitute Jewish believers in Jerusalem. So he's saying, have I put my seal on this fruit of, to them, not of theirs, it should be to them. In fact, let me give you my translation of this verse on the board. If you could look up on the board, verse 28, it says, therefore, after I've completed this, in other words, after I myself have safely delivered this fruit to them, I will allow myself to depart for Spain by way of you. So that phrase, uh, that word, when it says of theirs, that's autos, the personal pronoun, it's intensive. And it's not referring to the Gentile believers in Macedonia and Achaia, but the Jewish believers in Jerusalem that were poor. We know that because of Greek grammar. It's pretty obvious. It's a, the word's functioning as a dative indirect object, meaning that is, it's receiving the direct object of the verb sphrahizo. The direct object is the word fruit, karpos, Therefore, autos, translated theirs in your Bible, is receiving this fruit, which means that autos could only refer, refer to the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem and not the Gentile believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Why? Because they're the ones that sent the contribution for the benefit of the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Then he says, I will go on. That's a good word that's talking about Paul traveling. The phrase, I will go on, is one word in the Greek. It's apekoma. And that means to depart. Referring to Paul leaving Jerusalem for Spain via Rome after safely delivering to the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem 
the proceeds of the contribution from the Gentile churches and Macedonia and Achaia. Now, the words in the future tense, it's a predicted future. It indicates that it will come to pass or take place that Paul will depart from Jerusalem for Spain by Rome, emphasizing Paul's certainty that he will visit Spain by way of Rome. Did Paul get to Spain? He did. Clement says in church history that he did. It's a brief sentence about it. How else do we know? Because Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this. So he knows he's going there. The predictive future says it's going to come to pass. So just the language and the fact that Paul's inspired the Holy, by the Holy Spirit to write this, like all scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us that Paul got to Spain. Now, the middle voice, this word's in the middle voice as well, like sphrahizo. This time it's called a permissive middle. And that indicates that after delivering safely to the poor, Jewish believers in Jerusalem, the proceeds of this contribution... Paul will allow himself to depart for Spain via Rome. What does that mean to us? It indicates or it emphasizes his conscientiousness. He said, this is important. And once I've done this, then I'll go see you guys and then I'll go to Spain. So this permissive middle, when it says, I will go on, it's talking about the, uh, the permissive middle of this verb emphasizes the conscientiousness of Paul and the importance he attached to delivering this gift from the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia to the Jew destitute Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Now, when he says, by way of you, that indicates that after delivering this contribution, Paul will depart for Spain by way of the believers in Rome. So what is he saying? His stop in Rome is temporary. His ultimate, and, uh, his ultimate destination and his main priority is to get to Spain. Why is that important? The gospel has been proclaimed there. That's uncharted territory. As far as the gospel is concerned, I want to go there. The harvest is, 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 is they're ready to harvest over there. Um, the, the fields are white, just like, uh, just like uh, Iowa in, in, in late September or October when that corn is turned that ungodly brown or whatever it looks like and the, and the, the, and the soybeans are all ready to pick. Well, that's, that's, what, that's what Spain was. Spain to Paul was like a field that was ready to be harvest, harvested. Now, when he says to Spain, that's another prepositional phrase and uh, composed of the preposition is and then the, the uh, noun, España. And this uh, Spain, of course, was a large peninsula in southwestern Europe known since Roman times as Hispania. So in Paul's day, they called it Hispania. Now, the word functions as the object of the preposition is, as I mentioned before, and that preposition functions as a marker of extension toward a geographical location. And what does that mean, Pastor Bill? It indicates that one of Paul's goals for the future was to visit Spain and evangelize it. Is it wrong for a Christian to make goals for the future? No, there's nothing wrong with that. Paul did. Of course, we all know that it's always subject to change. You know, you can make plans for the future. I make plans. For instance, I plan out all my lessons. I know, I know that, uh, I, I know that uh, with Romans, I'll be done at the end of August. I'm sure there'll be a big parade in Norway. But uh, for some people, I'm <laughs> just kidding. I can't help. I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just my Massachusetts thing, you know, sarcasm. And uh, so what we see is that, and some people might be sad like me, but we see is that uh, it's all right to make goals, but we also need to understand that we need to be making them as God directs us. And that God, they're always subject to change. But it's all right to, you should plan things and plan things in advance. And that's what Paul's saying to us here with this prepositional phrase, which you could actually translate, translate it for Spain. So what we see, if, you could, if I could show you my translation of this verse on the board, and then I want to just make two comments. 
a couple of comments here. Um, Romans 15, 28, on the board, my translation. Therefore, after I have completed this, in other words, after I have myself have delivered safely this fruit to them, the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem, then I will allow myself to depart for Spain by way of you. So therefore, let me just show you this point here on the board. This passage here that we just read and studied reveals the importance that Paul attached to this offering in the sense that it reveals that he would not visit the Roman believers who he longed to see. So it was something he attached importance to this gift and that it reveals he would not visit. Romans 15, 28 reveals that Paul would not visit the Roman believers and head to Spain until he had first safely delivered this offering to the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. It's interesting. God the Holy Spirit considered it very important. Why? Chapter 15 talks about it in the book of Romans. We studied second, We looked at 2 Corinthians 8 tonight. 2 Corinthians 9. All made reference to this particular offering for the poor destitute Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Also, So we see that Acts chapter 19, chapter 20, 21 and 22... All speak of this. That's why Paul was heading to Jerusalem. He was going to be imprisoned. And eventually, when he was imprisoned, that's how he got to Rome, as a prisoner of the government. He was appealing to Caesar. So that this was huge. I mean, look at all the chapters that Paul, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit, excuse me, devoted to this particular offering and how important it was. I, I believe, and this is clear, as I've been bringing out, several reasons why God wanted, the Holy Spirit wanted this in, in Scripture and makes mention of it. It was important. It shows us how churches should act toward each other, how Christians should act toward each other, Jew and Gentile, or Gentiles with Gentiles, or Jewish believers with Jewish believers, or Gentile and Jewish believers. This is how important it is, that giving is an, ex- is an expression of love, God's love, and it's, a, it's the production of the Holy Spirit. It's divine good. It produces thanksgiving to God. It's so important that the Holy Spirit devoted all these chapters to it. In fact, the Bible talks a lot, a lot. Jesus talked a lot about our stewardship of our finances. Quite a bit. We studied that in the past when we studied stewardship. Now, here's a map. Just quickly, I'll show you this, and then we'll wrap this up. We see that here he is. He's in Corinth, uh, right here in the middle of the map. He's here in Corinth, and what he's going to do is he's going to go up to Berea, go north into Macedonia. He hugs the coast, and then he's going to go and jump, take a ship, and then he's going to go right down below here into the Mediterranean Sea. He's going to clip the corner of... uh, Oops. He's going to clip the corner. Don't click the mouse point. He's going to go right around Cyprus, south of Cyprus. He's going to dump off in Tyre, and then he's a hop, skip, and a jump south to Jerusalem. That's the trip he took with this contribution, this financial contribution, materials, I'm sure probably clothing and stuff, all of that was for these poor, destitute Jewish believers. It was really, really important. And it was going to close a chapter of Paul's life. And then he would be entering into his final chapter of his life and his ministry for God and God's people. Well, we'll pick this up on Sunday. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit would challenge us with the things that we heard, encourage us, instruct us in righteous, rebuke us if necessary through the Spirit. And we pray that as a result of this Bible class, that the things that we apply in this class would bring glory to you. And Father, we pray that you would bless the fellowship after. We pray that it would be empowered by the Spirit. 
and also give us traveling mercies on the way home. And we thank you for those who are here this evening and those that were listening on Pal Talk and those who will listen at a later date. We pray that they would be edified by what they heard this evening. In our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.